You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. There you'll find a link to send me a message and you'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. And you'll find all of the back episodes there as well. One of the calls and the strong messages that came out of the rebellion that followed the George Floyd murder by police was an effort to defund the police. This uh, piece here was published in 2020. During that time, is written by Paige Fernandez. It's published at ACLU.org. Almost exactly six years after NYPD officers murdered Eric Garner in New York City, Minneapolis police officers murdered George Floyd Activists, advocates, and protesters are still screaming, I can't breathe, and begging government officials for police reform that will end police violence in black communities. But today's demands are bigger and bolder. Now protesters are advocating for systemic changes that require a complete reimagining of law enforcement in the United States. American policing has never been a neutral institution. The first U.S. City Police Department was a slave patrol, and modern police forces have directed oppression and violence at black people to enforce Jim Crow, wage the war on drugs, and crack down on protests. When people ask for police reform, many are actually asking for this oppressive system to be dismantled and to invest in institutions, resources, and services that help communities grow and thrive. That is why many protesters and activists following in the footsteps of black-led grassroots groups are demanding immediate defunding of police departments. The idea of defunding or divestment is new to some folks, but the basic premise is simple. We must cut the astronomical amount of money that our government spend on law enforcement and give that money to more helpful services like job training, counseling, and violence prevention programs. Each year, state and local governments spend upward of $100 billion on law enforcement, and that's excluding billions more in federal grants and resources. Budgets are not created in a vacuum. They can be changed through targeted advocacy and organizing. We can demand that our local officials, including city council members and mayors, stop allocating funds for the police to acquire more militarized equipment and instead ask for that money to go towards community-run violence prevention programs. We can demand that our federal government redirect the money that funds police presence in schools to putting counselors in schools instead. 
funneling so many resources into law enforcement instead of education, affordable housing, and accessible health care has caused significant harm to communities. Police violence is actually a leading cause of death for black men. A recent study found that one in 1,000 black men can expect to be killed by police, and public health experts have described police violence as a serious public health issue. For a country like ours, which considers itself a modern democracy, that pushes ideals of freedom and justice for all, that number should be truly shocking. Much of the work police do is merely engage in the daily harassment of black communities for minor crimes or crimes of poverty that shouldn't be criminalized in the first place. Consider this. Out of the 10.3 million arrests made per year, only 5% are for the most serious offenses, including murder, rape, and aggravated assault. These are the ones that truly threaten public safety. The other 95% of arrests are for things like traffic violations, marijuana possession, unlawful assembly, and even removing a shopping cart from store premises. That means that police spend the most resources going after minor incidents that actually don't threaten everyday life, but do lead to mass criminalization and incarceration. And as you know, some arrests are made for doing nothing at all beyond being black. We have little evidence, if any, to show that more police surveillance results in fewer crimes and greater public safety. Indeed, funneling police into communities of color and pushing officers to make arrests just perpetuates harm and trauma. Yet, since the 1980s, spending on law enforcement and our criminal legal system has dramatically outpaced that in community services, such as housing, education, and violence prevention programs. Those are the institutions that help build stable, safe, and healthy communities. For example, Los Angeles's budget gives police $3.14 billion out of the city's $10.5 billion, spending on community services such as economic development at $30 million and housing at $81 million, pale in comparison to the massive LAPD budget. Similarly, in New York City, the government spends almost $6 billion on policing, which is more than it does on the Department of Health, Homeless Services, Housing Preservation, and Development, and Youth and Community Development combined. By shrinking their massive budgets, we can help end decades of racially driven social control and oppression, as well as address social programs at their root instead of investing in an institution that further oppresses and terrorizes communities. In addition to divesting from police and reinvesting the savings in non-punitive programs that benefit public safety and health, there are other critical steps we need to take to foster the systemic change people across the country are calling for. 1. End enforcement of minor offenses that drive street-level harassment. We can do this by repealing laws across the country that criminalize minor behaviors and passing laws that legalize activities such as marijuana possession and distribution. 2. End the presence of police in schools, which exacerbates racial inequalities, puts immigrant students at risk of deportation, and limits opportunities accessible to low-income students. 3. Develop mobile crisis services, peer crisis services, and crisis hotlines and warm lines 
where people can call when they just need to talk to someone who understands what it's like to live with mental health problems, to support people who have behavioral or mental health crisis. Four, ban pretextual stops and consent searches that act as common mechanisms for police to engage in racial profiling and circumvent legal standards. Five, implement common sense, civilly and criminally enforceable legal constraints so there will be only rare instances in which officers are able to use force against community members. For too long, the focus on police reform has been dominated by reforms that try to reduce the harms of policing rather than rethink the overall role of police in society. But six years after the Black Lives Matter movement rose to national attention, activists across the country are coming together to demand what many have known has been the solution all along. Defund the police. And that piece from two and a half years ago does a good job outlining the need and outlining what defund means. And since that time, while there were some initial efforts at some level of defunding in, in a small number of locations, and there's a story on that later, um, the defund movement has hit more than a brick wall. It has hit resistance to the point that police departments are overfunded, continue to be overfunded at an accelerated rate. And uh, part of the reason for that, and there's more on this later as well, is that um, certain types of crime in certain areas have increased and that has given cover for the folks that want to blame the defund movement for that and increase funding and and get wide support or get some support for increasing the funding. For the most part, people don't pay attention. Um, one of the efforts to combat certain types of, of increases in crime happened in Memphis and directly led to Tyree Nichols' murder at the hands of police. It, with great fanfare in 2021, the Memphis police launched its Scorpion unit. Scorpion stands for Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods. And content warning, this section especially in perhaps some other spots in this episode will rely on statements made by the police and the police are notorious for lying. According to Memphis Police Department, the Scorpion unit is made up of four teams of officers whose primary focus will be violent crime reduction and the saturation of hotspot areas throughout the city. Chief C.J. Davis vowed to crack down on reckless driving in the city. Quote, Our efforts are not just to write citations and send them on their way, Davis said during a crime forum on Wednesday night. When we identify individuals who are reckless driving to the point where others are in danger, we want to take your car too. This is really, I think, an important 
thing to understand about this unit um, in relation to to the Tyree Nichols murder. This was their goal and their purpose to become an obvious presence. Now that's not even true because they were un, they were in unmarked cars in largely street clothes, not regular uniforms, though they had identifying identifying labels on their backs. Um, so it, it was to catch people for minor infractions and escalate that to the point where they could confiscate people's cars. Two months into Scorpion's deployment, Memphis Mayor Jim Strickland touted the unit's effectiveness. In his State of the City speech, Strickland claimed the unit was responsible for 566 arrests, 390 of them felony arrests, seized $103,000 in cash, 270 vehicles, and 253 weapons between October 2021 and January 23rd 2022 so here's here's how they're measuring their success how much cash did we seize how many vehicles did we seize this and this is not uncommon in police departments um there's there's a lot of laws that allow the police to confiscate personal property of folks that they interact with this is a part of stealing wealth from the community. Uh, this this is not insignificant, and and beyond that, it's it's terrorizing those folks every day. That you can, based on what someone claims, is some sort of reckless driving. What's reckless driving? Does it mean going fifty miles an hour in a in a forty mile an hour? zone could be um and should you should you lose your car over that this is punitive and is made to terrorize the community and the and the folks that are impacted and it is made to extract wealth from folks that often don't have much wealth because if you try to extract wealth in this way from folks that have wealth, you get in a lot of trouble real fast. Here's a piece from WREG.com written by April Thompson. The five police officers who were fired after Tyree Nichols' death hadn't been with Memphis police long before the fatal traffic stop. And, and I'll just point out that phrasing is this enormous deferential treatment that the media pays to all authority in general, but specifically to police departments, where the media is just an amplification of the police voice and they couch their language in ways that are pro-police. This wasn't a fatal traffic stop. These police officers murdered Tyree Nichols, and to state it otherwise, unless you state it even more forcefully, is diminishing what happened. 
Some who know the officers say at least one confirmed that he and possibly several others were with the new Scorpion unit that Memphis police created in 2021 as a solution to fight crime. Cornell McKinney says the same Scorpion unit stopped him on January 3, four days before Nichols was pulled over. Quote, I actually read it on the back of their vest, he said. It said MPD Scorpion unit. All I heard is freeze, get out the car, put your MF hands up before I blow your heads off. Both of you, get out the car, put your hands up, he said, recalling the incident. So I put my hands up and one of the officers proceeded to come to the car and he physically pulled me out by my shoulder with a gun no more than a foot away from my head. McKinney says the officers in unmarked cars would never say why they stopped them. He took this picture of the stop. They eventually asked who the drugs belonged to. I said, man, I just want to cross the street to get a pizza and I'm on my way back to the house. He's like, uh, who's finna ride for this pound? I said, can we call my lawyer? Then the officer, he yelled out, this ain't court. This ain't the time for lawyers, he said. I was like, man, I just came to get a pizza. And he was like, I was just playing. Ain't no pound in the car. And he let me walk off. This is a massive escalation tactic. Uh, one, sometimes these officers plant drugs or other incriminating evidence. Two, whether they had the capability of doing that or not, this is an instigation and, and a th massive threat to somebody. You're threatening the potential for this person's freedom to be gone. And that can invoke negative responses, which can escalate the situation. McKinney showed us his call log where he says he placed two phone calls to MPD's internal affairs to complain about the officer's forcefulness, but he still hasn't heard back. Then he saw the picture of the five officers fired in the Tyree Nichols case. I was like, that's them. I said, it's crazy. That's them, McKinney said. Now they really hurt somebody. It could have been prevented if internal affairs took action like I was asking them to. This is the kind of policing you get when you throw money at the police department and they build a solution with no safeguards, no guardrails, no no protection, and they don't invest in training, mental health support, other things that could help uh, alleviate these types of actions that are too common among the police. Here's a piece published at Yahoo News about uh, the Memphis police chief that was behind the Scorpion unit. As she rose through the ranks of the Atlanta Police Department, Serilyn C.J. Davis spent nearly 18 months overseeing a hyper-aggressive street crime unit named Red Dog that was ultimately disbanded following a public backlash in a series of lawsuits. So uh, here's another massive issue with policing and why defunding is the only thing 
that's going to have the potential. Defunding, even, even if we do defunding and do it well, it may not be ultimately successful. But reform will not be successful because of this, this issue. Bad cops or cops that, that produce bad outcomes don't go away. They don't lose their jobs. They move on and too often replicate that somewhere else. And that's exactly what we have in this case. Now, in the wake of Tyree Nichols' death, Davis faces questions over why she would launch a similar team in Memphis, Tennessee, called the Scorpion Unit, shortly after she arrived to lead the city's police force in 2021. Quote, If anyone in Memphis had checked with anyone from the world of police oversight in Atlanta, they would have learned that creating a red dog-like squad using red dog-like tactics was inevitably going to result in police misconduct and violence, said Dan Grossman, an Atlanta lawyer who filed several successful lawsuits on behalf of victims alleging they were roughed up by red dog officers. Davis arrived in Memphis as a trailblazer, the first black woman to lead the police force in this majority black city and a vocal advocate for police reform. There's that word, police reform, who had testified before the U.S. Senate. Her actions in the wake of Nichols' death, which included swiftly firing the five officers, initially drew praise. And those were good actions. Those were the right choices to make. Those should be the choices in every case where the police murder somebody, especially when the clear evidence from the start is that person posed no threat. But now she faces increasing scrutiny over not just the decision to launch the Scorpion unit in Memphis, but also her earlier career in Atlanta, where she supervised the disgraced Red Dog unit in 2006 and 2007. The unit had about 30 officers and a mission to flood areas of high crime in Atlanta. Same, same exact wording that they used in, in relation to describing the Memphis unit. Flood areas of high crime in Atlanta with overwhelming force. Patrolling in groups of four or five, the officers were notorious for ambushing young men, yanking down their pants in public, and performing full-body cavity searches in a hunt for drugs and an attempt to spread fear, according to a review of lawsuits, police officer affidavits, and civilian review board memos, as well as interviews with plaintiff's lawyers and former Atlanta police oversight officials. Quote, Members of the Red Dog were just told to get the job done by whatever means, Stallone Davis, who joined the Red Dog unit around 2007, said in a 2012 court affidavit. Over the years, Atlanta settled at least 10 lawsuits related to the Red Dog unit misconduct, costing taxpayers more than $2 million in settlements, according to an NBC News review. Hmm, that $106,000 in cash and 200-something cars that the uh, Scorpion unit confiscated from folks doesn't uh, look so good when the city's paying upwards of $2 million in settlements in Atlanta for the Red Dog group. Uh, so these things don't even pay off financially, which shouldn't be the goal of police in the first place. 
In describing itself and its operations, the uh, Scorpion Group said on the police department's Facebook page, um, arrests that begin with traffic stops escalate into more serious confrontations and end with arrests of people for drugs and guns. Kedron Franklin, a Memphis community organizer, said Scorpion was like other specialized police units, including the county-run multi-agency gang unit, and that the officers seemed to stoke fear and distrust by the way they confronted people. Quote, The way they move in unmarked cars, looking like regular guys, bumping to rap music, they got on hoodies, they're really looking the part, like they're part of the community, but they're police, Franklin said. Then someone maybe slips up, smokes weed, or doesn't have their seatbelt on, or headlight is out, and they jump out and stop them and want to go through their car. Only then do the people see Scorpion, or police, on the back of their vests. Chelsea Glass, an organizer with Decarcerate Memphis, which advocates for reform of the criminal justice system, said that Scorpion was a rebranding of a common police tactic, a street crime fighting team that relied on low-level traffic stops as pretexts to find violent criminals and weapons. Quote, They harass everyday residents, and they're calling this high-level policing, Glass said. But it's really just stop and frisk on wheels. It doesn't matter what name you slap on it. So that, those are some of the details and kind of some of the roots and practices of the group of police officers and not, I don't believe every police officer involved in Tyree Nichols' murder was from the Scorpion unit, but several were. Next up, we've got a piece published at teenvogue.com. This is written by Oleyemi Olurin. In America, we routinely witness white police officers murdering black people, though these crimes are rarely called murders. Thousands of people may spend months, sometimes even years, protesting and demanding that officers be charged for the killings we saw them commit. But those offices are very seldom prosecuted or convicted, and even when they are, even after they've been convicted, some segments of white America will still find a way to defend them. We recently saw five black Memphis police officers get charged with murder just 19 days after they killed 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. Before we saw the video footage, before we protested and marched all over the country. This time, many in the media insisted the footage would show the most brutal police assault we've ever seen. Everything that played out before and after. Authorities debuted the video of the vicious attack that led to Nichols' death. Heightened anticipation, as if it was the long-awaited release of Dr. Dre's detox. And is a testament to several things most black people have long known. First, there doesn't need to be a white person in the room for white supremacy to function. Second, although white supremacy wholeheartedly welcomes black cops and any other black person who wants in to be its agents, it will never protect you as it protects its own. Third, diversifying police departments doesn't address the fact that policing is as systemically racist as it is innately violent. All too often, hiring more black and brown officers just provides us with the privilege of being brutalized by people who look like us. As James Baldwin wrote, quote, 
black policemen were another matter. We used to say, if you must call a policeman, for we hardly ever did, for God's sake, try to make sure it's a white one. A black policeman could completely demolish you. He knew far more about you than a white policeman could, and you're without defenses before this black brother in uniform, whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that though he was black, he was not black like you. Or in the words of N.W.A., who put it simply, but don't let it be a black and white cop, because they'll slam you down to the street top. Black police showing out for the white cop. The danger posed by the black police officer is well known and documented across the black community. The debilitating truth is that there is nothing new about how, how Tyree Nichols was senselessly murdered in America, a country where the police killed 1,192 people in 2022, according to the Mapping Police Violence Project, and the Los Angeles Police Department killed three black men in the first days of 2023. But people are too willing to act as if Nichols' death is something new. Why? Because there are a few things America does well in the wake of routine tragedy, and that's feign ignorance, scapegoat, and deflect by condemning a part to preserve the whole. Five black police officers brutalizing and killing a black man provides a unique opportunity for America to do everything it does best all at once. Because the officers in this case are black, people get to feign ignorance about the meaning of systemic and institutional racism in policing, as though activists haven't been screaming about it for years. Conservatives can condemn the evil of these particular officers who, as Representative Jim Jordan said, quote, did not have any respect for life. We can focus obsessively on the race of the officers, making five black men the face of police brutality, proof that, quote, Racism has nothing to do with it, all while still denying any overarching issues with policing. For a discussion about the officer's race in the nation, Anthony Conright wrote, quote, Americans are all anti-black because anti-blackness is a governing force of the country's interests. We didn't see this kind of response when white Colorado police officers injected autistic 23-year-old Elijah McLean with ketamine while he was handcuffed. Or when Indianapolis police shot Sean Reed and then stood over his dead body cracking a joke. During Derek Chauvin's trial for kneeling on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, suffocating Floyd as he pleaded for air, an expert testified that Floyd's health was to blame for why he couldn't breathe. After Pace University student Dan Roy Henry was fatally shot by a white police officer, the police union gave the cop an Officer of the Year award. But we're supposed to believe that this video is different. These police officers are different. Their actions were especially egregious, somehow especially brutal. Despite the quickness and willingness to fire, charge, and condemn these black officers, many don't want to refer to them as police officers, but as thugs. Instead of recognizing this tragedy, as police brutality. They're calling it black-on-black -black crime because when the cops are black, there's no more Blue Lives Matter. They no longer struggle to concede criminality. I've even read a few far-right conspiracy theorists on Twitter who said they don't believe the Memphis police officers were cops at all, but Antifa agents hired to make police look bad 
as though we haven't seen police brutalize and kill people on camera many times before. As if these officers weren't intentionally selected by their police department for their special anti-crime Scorpion unit, which was abruptly disbanded after the footage of Nichols' death was released. I'm not defending the Memphis officers. I don't sympathize with them. I, like their police department and the media, wish to make an example of them, but for different reasons. I want to offer them as proof of this very simple truth. You can choose to align yourself with your oppressors and help them oppress your community. They won't stop you. They will even welcome you. But they will not protect you. As a black person, you can choose to work against your own community to your perceived advantage, but you must always remember that the white supremacists you may think are tokenizing and validating you are really just using you to legitimize their power over you. For that reason alone, you are allowed to act. In their eyes, you are no less inferior and you are no more deserving. You are a tool and you should cease to be useful. You will be discarded just as these officers have been. And I think that piece laid it out better than I could myself. Um, you don't have to be white to support and uphold white supremacy. The system is is built on white supremacy. It is woven into the fabric of the system. It is the foundation of the system. And you can become part of the system. But you are upholding all of those ingrained and embedded quote-unquote values. Next piece up is published at KansasCityDefender.com. This is written by Ryan S. and Brianna Bonner. Less than two weeks ago, we celebrated the birthday of one of our most prolific leaders, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who famously stated that, quote, the riot is the language of the unheard. Today, these words ring truer than ever in the wake of the lynching of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police. In the past week, those who have watched the video of Nichols' ruthless murder have expressed their disgust. Chief of police and government leaders alike have urged people not to protest in response to the video. Quote, There's a right way and a wrong way to express yourself when you're upset or angry about something. We need to make sure if there's that sentiment expressed here, it's done in the right way. FBI Director Christopher Wray said at today's press conference in a thinly veiled threat. President Joe Biden said in a written statement, quote, Violence is destructive and against the law. It has no place in peaceful protests seeking justice. But the system brought this upon itself when it barbarically murdered Tyree Nichols. May peace, love, and protection be brought to his family. Whatever the response of the people, regardless of how visceral, how unorganized, how expressive, whether it is a candlelight vigil or burning down buildings, there can be no condemnation of such actions that are themselves responses to the brazen, vicious violence inflicted daily on the black community by the systems of policing and white supremacy. We will no longer be fooled or misled by the media which detracts from the truth and fact of the savagery the unconscionable brutality of the police. 
They are such when suffocating, shooting, kneeling on the neck, choking and asphyxiating, lynching, beating and tasing, hanging and murdering people, but also when inflicting psychological violence through the slave era, patrolling, surveilling and terrorizing our neighborhoods and cities. Their mere everyday existence is structural violence as it extracts and drains hundreds of millions of dollars that would otherwise be invested in education, healthcare, affordable housing, mental health, childcare, and other life-affirming institutions. The police instead siphon off these necessary community nutrients acting as a parasite which extracts these resources from our communities ultimately driving us into homelessness, segregation-era education facilities, and children so food and housing insecure that worms eat half of the food they ingest, all while the police purchase multi-million dollar helicopters, military-grade vehicles, weaponry, and drones. If we are to discuss violence today, let's discuss this. Do not talk to us today about potential for violence from protesters. To do so is to appropriate the language and framing of white supremacy to be the slave risking their own life to protect the master's burning house. It is traitorous to our people. On some level, it is both anger and love that fuel our movements forwards towards liberation. And we should be very angry. Between the police once again waging warfare on black Americans for doing everyday tasks, police murdering indigenous protectors from protecting their land against the expansion of military power, and bills across the country stripping black people from the rights to know their history and their rights to survive, we are warranted anger. What should first exit our hearts and mouths as we prepare for what is to come is solidarity. What can we do to support the family and each other? If or when riots do occur, how can we be establishing mutual aid networks and bail funds for those courageous freedom fighters sacrificing their lives and safety to uplift Tyre's name? These freedom fighters who are demanding a dismantling of this unimaginably destructive system and through their actions saying we will absolutely not allow this to go on with business as usual. These oppressive systems wreak both physical ills and psychological destruction on our minds. With every outburst of violence as a result of policing, we shrug it off. We keep going with our day in hopes of not being worn down by the reality of our country becoming increasingly unlivable. We urge every reader to break this cycle. Instead, take a second and really feel an emotion about the state of our country. Reflect on every black victim of police violence and feel anger toward a system that encourages and condones this. Consider the black women who have been missing and killed. Feel longing, feel hurt, feel anger, feel slighted, feel human. Truly take a moment and mourn for those that you will never meet. We must grieve and grieve publicly. As the quote states, grief is the last act of love we have to give to our loved ones. Where there is deep grief, there is great love. With our collective grief, we reinstill the value in sharing love for every member of our community, both the ones we love for a lifetime and the ones we love but never get to know. Next, we must understand collectively that this level of grief should not be necessary. We shouldn't be losing our community members to state-sanctioned violence. 
Reject the notion that these deaths are inevitable. Reject the idea that some must suffer in order to maintain safety. Ultimately, reject the notion that the world must continue to look this way. It doesn't. We must act, and we must act quickly. The very idea of being nonviolent in this system is laughable because it is erected and maintained through violence at our expense. Stop telling black people not to riot after the release of the Tyree Nichols video. Any form of riot in response to such horrific violence can be described only as sacred and righteous action. What the police learned from the murder of George Floyd, and it was part of their playbook anyway, is control the narrative. When the police in Memphis murdered Tyree Nichols, controlling the narrative was paramount importance. Controlling the flow of information to provide time for the system, the white supremacist system of policing and response to prepare for protests, uh, the actions taken against the officers, the swift action, swift largely because they were black and that made it easier for them to take swift action was done to quell protests, to put a lid on, to slow things down, to try to prevent a repeat of what came after George Floyd's murder. It remains to be seen if that's how, how effective that is going to be. It seems to have had some significant effects so far. And it's just the system protecting itself. It's the system committing the same exact acts again and again, brutal violence and murder of people who pose zero threat and protecting itself from repercussions of that. The actions and the way that the actions were, were rolled out were not to stop it from happening next time except for the disbanding of the Scorpion unit, but it will just be replaced by another unit with another name. The tactics will just be recycled by other officers. None of the actions undertaken are actions intended to stop the brutality, to stop the harassment, to stop the terrorizing of folks in the black community and other communities of color, all of the actions are taken to preserve the system, to make sure they can continue to terrorize people of color and the black community, continue to murder without any significant repercussions. And this is why the defund movement is necessary. One of the struggles of the defund movement is a lack of the clarity of the defund message being presented in media that the majority of folks out there consume. And that lack of a clear, strong, and consistent message about what defund means has allowed other people to twist the reality to claim it means something it does not. Um, 
it is a very a very powerful tactic and the center and right are very good at managing narratives um it's what turns a a good and useful word like woke or a system of understanding systemic white supremacist uh, oppression such as critical race theory it allows those folks in the center and right to manipulate what those things mean to the point where they can accuse almost anything of being woke or of being CRT and get a lot of support from their end of the political spectrum to oppose those things that they entirely don't understand. The whole movement to remove CRT from um, K through 12 education is a false movement to remove some attempts at presenting realistic history in those settings uh, to to remove those to to those attempts to reveal actual history of America inclusive of people of color inclusive of black people and from the point of view of black people and people of color those soft attempts those early attempts at expanding our understanding of our nation's history in these ways are called CRT by those critics. They are not CRT. They are not what CRT is and, and has been designed to be. But this is the manipulation of the understanding of the language that we use to debate and challenge systems of white supremacy. And if there's one thing that all of our systems are very good at, it is protecting themselves. It is preserving the status quo, making sure there's no fundamental change that happens in those systems. Here's a piece from Daniel Funky, published at usatoday.com. Some conservative commentators on social media are blaming the defund the police movement for a recent spike in homicide rates. Quote, 12 major cities broke homicide rate records this year, reads a text in a December 16 Facebook post. They are all led by Democratic mayors. This is what happens when you try to, quote, defund the police. The post, which conservative content creator Benny Johnson originally tweeted December 15, racked up more than 700 shares within two weeks. Similar claims have accumulated thousands of additional interactions on Facebook and Instagram. Between 2019 and 2020, the U.S. recorded its highest increase in the national homicide rate in modern history. And in 2021, 12 cities did break their annual homicide records. However, most of those cities did not substantively cut their 2021 police spending as part of a defunding initiative. While it's too soon to say for sure, experts told USA Today a combination of social unrest, rising firearm sales, economic stress, and other pandemic-related factors could be behind the spike in homicides. Quote, In a nutshell, there doesn't appear to be evidence that the defunding movement has caused violent crime increases, David Carter, criminal justice professor at Michigan State University, said in an email. As evidence to support the claim that defunding led to 
increases in violent crime. Johnson and the Proud Republicans sent USA Today articles reporting that 12 cities hit all-time homicide records in 2021. But the blame here is misplaced. Most of those cities did not substantively cut their 2021 police spending as part of a defunding initiative. Defunding the police generally means taking money away from police departments and, in many cases, reallocating it to social programs or other city initiatives. The movement grew in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Portland was among the first cities to defund its police department. In June 2020, the city cut $15 million from its police budget for the following year. While some of the cities that hit homicide records in 2021 followed suit, others did not commit to defunding initiatives. Several actually increased funding for the police. Here's a look at the funding in each of the other cities mentioned. In Albuquerque, police spending increased over the past few years. In August 2020, Austin cut its police department budget by $150 million for the following fiscal year, by far the most dramatic cut of any city on the list. Most of the money was reallocated to other priorities, including a reimagined safety fund. In Baton Rouge, police spending has increased over the past few years. In Columbus, police spending shrank by about $13 million between 20 and 2021. Indianapolis police funding increased by about $7 million. Louisville increased police funding. Philadelphia diverted $14 million in police funding to another part of the city's budget for the following fiscal year. In June 2020, Rochester cut $3.6 million from its police budget. And St. Paul cut its police department's budget by more than $750,000. Toledo police spending rose by more than $16 million. And Tucson police funding increased by about $2 million. And some of the cities that cut police funding as a result of a defunding initiative have since increased the budgets of their police departments. So there is no consistent correlation between locations that did some level of defunding of their police departments and the rise in particular types of crime. Here's a piece uh, published at abcnews.go.com, written by Grace Manthe. In Los Angeles, the county sheriff says local residents are in danger because, quote, defunding has consequences, even though his agency's budget is up more than $250 million since 2019. Sheriff Alex Villanueva is not alone in suggesting to voters that crime is up because Democrats defunded police agencies after nationwide protests following the 2020 murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. Politicians, pundits, and police leaders across the country are repeating the accusation as they address concerns about crime heading toward Election Day. Yet, in many communities, defunding never happened. ABC-owned television stations examined the budgets of more than 100 cities and counties and found that 83% are spending at least 2% more on police in 2022 than in 2019. Of the 109 budgets analyzed, only eight agencies cut police funds by more than 2%. So that is about 7%. Only 7% of police departments analyzed in the study cut police funds between 2019 and 2022 by more than 2%. In 49 cities or counties, police funding has increased by more than 10%, and in 91 agencies, funding has increased by at least 2%. 
Despite what the public record shows, an analysis of broadcast transcripts shows that candidates, law enforcement leaders, and television hosts discussed the impact of defunding the police more than 10,000 times over the last two years, according to the Internet Archive's TV news transcripts dating back to June 2020. Dr. Rashawn Ray, a sociologist and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, told KABC in Los Angeles that this false narrative has persisted due to repetition by public officials. Quote, Overwhelmingly, cities, counties, police departments across the country are not being defunded in any way, Ray said. In fact, many of them have increased their budgets. Part of the reason why the defund the police narrative has stayed around is because police officers say it and elected officials say it. This is that spin. This is that the system, the, the way the system is designed, including the media, to protect itself, to make sure there are no fundamental changes. ABC's analysis of police budget data shows police spending has increased in some of the very cities frequently cited by conservative politicians and pundits as places where Democrats defunding have fueled violent crime waves. The Los Angeles Police Department's budget is up by 9.4% since 2019. San Francisco's police budget is up by 4%, and Philadelphia's is up by 3%. Chicago police spending is up by 15%, representing almost a quarter billion dollars in new police spending since 2019. This is the thing. Even though some of these percentages sound low, 3, 4, 9%, these are of enormous budgets, so that in Chicago, a 15% amount is almost a quarter billion dollars. In Houston, where the homicide rate nearly doubled in both 2020 and 2021 before starting to subside this year, local government officials have increased police spending nearly 9%, almost $80 million from 2019 to 2022. And President Joe Biden heralded this movement in his 2022 State of the Union address, saying, quote, the answer is not to defund the police. It is to fund the police, fund them, a line that drew bipartisan applause. And they continue to spin falsehoods about the defund movement. Police Benevolent Association President Patrick Lynch said the defund movement hurt officer morale. Quote, more than any budget cut, because there weren't that many, the greatest damage from the defund the police movement was done by its anti-police, anti-public safety message, Lynch told WABC in New York. That is not the message of defund the police. While there's certainly some anti-police elements, it is the actions that the police take that the defund movement is opposed to and why the defund movement believes defunding is the right and perhaps only thing that will make the change happen. But to also equate that or state that as an anti-public safety message is the exact opposite of what the defund movement is. When you equate police with safety, you are falling for this false narrative that you've been taught everywhere, everywhere in American society. You are taught police equals safety, except in the homes of black parents. Because if you are a black child in America, chances are, You have been taught that the police do not equal safety, but everywhere else in school, in the media, in all of our institutions, all of these that have this, this fundamental foundation of white supremacy, 
which let's face it, that's all of our institutions. You are taught that police equals safety. So therefore, some organizations or some folks that are speaking out against the police are are naturally anti-public safety. It is so easy for them to make this false claim about the defund movement and and have everyone believe it or many people believe it. People who haven't had those direct uh, encounters or direct impacts from the way that policing happens today um, will easily believe that defunding the police means anti-public safety. It's entirely the opposite. It's it's public safety because the police do not do not support or guarantee public safety. If they did, we would have public safety. With these police budgets, if they did what they claim they do or claim they should be doing, we would have the safest goddamn country in the world. And the rest of this quote by uh, Patrick Lynch is just, just as disingenuous. Quote, it has created this anti-police, anti-public safety message, quote unquote, has created an impossible environment on the streets, one where even the simplest interactions turn into a confrontation. We see the that is not because of the defund movement. That is because of the way that policing happens. That is the fundamental underlying way that policing happens in our country. It takes simple interactions and it turns them into confrontations. This is why Tyree Nichols was murdered. This is why thousands of folks are murdered every year by the police. Criminal justice experts say that even if the cuts were real, and we've just clearly shown that they were not, but even if they were real, the premise that lower police spending leads to increased crime, or vice versa, is counter to decades of evidence, according to public data. An ABC analysis of state and local police funding and overall violent crime data in the U.S. between 1985 and 2020 found no relationship between year-to-year police spending and crime rates. An analysis by the Washington Post found similar results from 1960 to 2018. It's false. Next up is a piece by Brian Root, published at hrw.org. In the past six years, police killed roughly 1,100 people annually, or three people a day, in the United States. The consistency of this rate is remarkable. Variations in policy, shifts in the number of police at the department level, and societal trends, including fluctuating crime rates or pandemics, have not significantly changed the aggregate tally of deaths. More than 2,000 people have been killed by police since George Floyd's murder. With black people killed 2.9 times, Native Americans at 1.7 times, and Latinx people at 1.3 times the rate of white people. And just to note that this piece was written in June, published in June of 2022, halfway through 2022. In 2022, murder rate by police was the highest of the last several years. The mass mobilization and protests that began in May 2020, ignited by the police killings of Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and a long line of others, were not simply a response to oppressive and unaccountable policing. Instead, studies have shown that many protesters saw a link between policing, 
the continuing effects of structural racism through all strata of society, general indifference to poverty, and high and growing racial and economic inequality. That is why a primary demand of protesters was for the authorities to reduce investment in police and use those funds to support communities in ways that could reduce inequality while simultaneously keeping people safe. Yet two years on, officials at every level of government throughout the country have largely made the political choice to do the opposite. They have disregarded protester demands, embraced the status quo, and in many places increased police funding without making the investments that communities sought to address societal problems and violence. Due to the COVID-19 economic crisis and the protests, about two dozen major cities reduced their fiscal year 2021 police budgets, though an even larger number of cities increased police budgets that year. Now, in nearly every one of the cities that made reductions, officials are boosting police spending. Los Angeles cut $150 million from the police budget in 2020, but recently gave the department 8.5% budget increase from 2021, driving the annual operating budget to nearly $2 billion. New York City shuffled its budget in 2020, shifting nearly a billion dollars from going directly to police, but in 2021, the New York Police Department received $200 million increase to its $5.3 billion operating budget, with Mayor Eric Adams promising further hiring this year. Chicago reduced police spending by $59 million in 2021, but announced a nearly $200 million increase in 2022, boosting the budget to $1.9 billion. Even Austin, Texas, which initially made the most drastic cut to police spending in the country, reducing the budget by 33% in 2021, has now increased funding to record levels, with police receiving $442 million, or more than a third of the city's 2022 operating budget. In some cases, those in charge have made investments in alternatives to law enforcement. In New York, Mayor Adams has proposed allocating $55 million to expand a program intended to send social workers instead of police in response to mental health emergencies. In Oregon, voters passed a law in 2020 decriminalizing drug possession and embracing public health approaches to problematic drug use. However, spending on more policing far outweighs new spending on alternative pro approaches. For example, while the Biden administration's fiscal year 23 budget allocates $500 million for community violence intervention programs, this is dwarfed by the over $32 billion allocated to new spending on police. Biden has also urged cities to use federal COVID-19 relief funds on police officers and cities are following directions. Many officials claim the increase in police funding is a direct response to the rise in homicide in the country. But evidence on the relationship between policing and violent crime is very mixed. An extremely small amount of officer time is spent investigating violent crime. Moreover, studies that examine the relationship between the number of officers and violence do not consider the individual and community harm that arises from relying on stopping, citing, arresting, and locking people up rather than addressing extreme inequalities and the root causes of violence. What we do know is that increases in the number of officers correspond with an increase in police contacts and misdemeanor arrests. These contacts and arrests fall disproportionately on those struggling with poverty and on black and brown people. 
They make it harder for people to support their families and communities, pay their rent or mortgage, attend school, and maintain employment. The recent increase in gun violence is traumatizing communities across the country. But fully funded police departments throughout the United States did not prevent this violence. The increases coincided with a period of generational societal upheaval caused by the pandemic, when uncertainty and vulnerability fell almost entirely on those with less wealth. The pandemic has only made things more difficult and has had a devastating impact on the economic and social rights of low-income people who were already struggling. Additionally, an unprecedented and consistent surge in gun purchases has occurred during this period. Research indicates that crime and safety, systemic racism, and the growing burden of poverty and inequality are strongly linked in the United States. As a sociologist Patrick Sharkey puts it, inequality creates the conditions for violence, and violence amplifies inequality. The United States is the wealthiest country in the world, but its distribution of wealth is more unequal than any other country. Nearly one in five children live below the official poverty line. Racial disparities exist in every aspect of society, from housing and home ownership to education to employment to health. The median wealth of black households is only 13% that of white households. Over the past decade, housing costs rose at three times the rate of wages. Government officials are choosing to throw more money at police to address societal problems rather than putting that funding towards addressing underlying issues such as poverty and inequality, mental health care and support, and substance use disorder. Studies show that investing in health care, housing, universal basic income, child care, universal pre-K, and public safety programs outside the criminal legal system infrastructure would reduce poverty and inequality and research suggests is likely to improve community safety. This choice indicates that those in power lack the will and courage to do what is necessary to realize basic human rights in the United States. Rather than doubling down on a policing strategy that has failed to ensure community safety and often results in the abuse of human rights, the United States should invest in the social safety net at federal, state, and local levels, as well as in community-based, non-carceral approaches to violence. Millions march through the country, coalescing around a call to divest from police and support and build prosperous communities where basic needs and rights are met. To continue to prioritize funding for police, while 12.5 million children live in poverty and inequality grows, is a political and societal choice. But as with any choice, there are other options. It only requires a determination to imagine something new. And this is the beauty of the movement that has risen up um, in reaction to the murders of black and brown people by the police is they have been imagining these different systems, different ways of organizing and structuring community support. And they've done a good job of imagining that. They've had a huge struggle in promoting that, in, in explaining and in getting the mass of the 
people in the United States to understand what that means. And that's because of the resistance of the existing system. Here's a few resources with more on defund the police, more explanation of what it is and what it means and what it stands for. Uh, first is defundpolice.org. Defund police means divesting from institutions that kill, harm, cage, and control our communities and investing in violence prevention and interruption, housing, health care, income support, employment, and other community-based safety strategies that will produce safer communities for everyone. Even as demands to defund police are being dismissed and attacked, communities are continuing to fight for a divestment of funds, power, and legitimacy from police and other violent institutions that fail to produce safety while looting resources our communities need to survive. We are building safety. We are building movements that will sustain our future. The demand is still defund the police. In the organization 82abolition.com, that is the number 8, T-O, abolition.com, has this to say about their step called defund the police of their eight steps. Defund police. Reject any proposed expansion to police budgets. Prohibit private public innovation schemes that profit from temporary technological fixes to systemic problems of police abuse and violence. These contracts and data sharing arrangements, however profitable for technologists and reformists, are lethal. Reduce the power of police unions. Until the police are fully defunded, make police union contract negotiations public. Pressure the AFL-CIO to denounce police unions. Prohibit city candidates taking money from police unions and stop accepting union funds. Withhold pensions and don't rehire cops involved in use of excessive force. Demand the highest budget cuts per year until they slash police budget to zero. Slash police salaries across the board until they are zeroed out. Immediately fire police officers who have any excessive force complaints. No hiring of new officers or replacement of fired or resigned officers. Fully cut funding for public relations. Suspend the use of paid administrative leave for cops under investigation. No investment in police training. No investment in police facility renovations. Deplatform white supremacist public officials. Repeal the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. End all police contracts with social services, care services, and government agencies providing care. Abolish asset forfeiture programs and laws. And once again, that is only one of the eight points of the 8toabolition.com group. Here is one of the, or here are the demands of 10 Demands. This is at 10forjustice.com. To set the stage for full abolition, one, defund the police and reallocate resources to impacted communities. Pass the Breathe Act, reject any proposed police department budget expansion, and implement the highest possible budget cuts every year till the police budget is reduced to zero. 
cut all police salaries until they are reduced to zero, institute a freeze on all new hires, end all new investments in police training and facility renovations, completely remove funding for public relations, eliminate paid administrative leave, eliminate for-profit policing, including all quotas, fines, pay-based arrests, and civil asset forfeitures. End all police contracts with government and non-government agencies providing social services. Repeal the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. Abolish all police unions and immediately strip their power by making all police union negotiations public. Demanding the AFL-CIO denounce police unions and prohibiting political candidates from accepting police union donations. Reallocate all existing police department funds to communities of color, tribal nations, and socioeconomically disadvantaged communities for schools, public health, social services, and other needs as determined by these communities. And these are the rest of the 10 demands. Once again, that was one, defund the police and reallocate the resources. Two, demilitarize the police. Three, eliminate discriminatory policing, prosecution, and sentencing. Four, institute complete law enforcement transparency and accountability. Five, independently investigate all police crimes and abuses of power. Six, install community representation, oversight, and safety measures. Seven, end strategic counter-protest violence. Eight, apologize and provide reparations. Nine, end the war on drugs. And ten, end carceral punishment. And from the organization defundthepolice.org, let's reimagine a new system. As public outrage at police brutality grows, a movement to redirect public resources away from traditional policing has taken hold around the country. Now we take a look at a few of the real-world alternatives to police services. Mental health services. Police are more likely to use lethal force when attending to an emergency call when a person is experiencing psychiatric distress. When an individual calls 911 while experiencing mental distress, what they need is expertise in de-escalation, social and health supports and services. Instead, they are met with multiple armed and uniformed police officers. The police have become the first point of access to mental health support for many underfunded communities. We have seen both in the United States and Canada, when police are dispatched to interact with black people in distress, our lives are put at risk. Osage Osagi in Pennsylvania, Andrew Loku in Toronto, Pamela Turner in Texas, Pierre Coriolan in Montreal, Isaiah Lewis in Oklahoma, Howard Hyde in Halifax, Dondre Campbell in Brampton as a small sample of recent examples. The police service is a dangerous option for people experiencing a mental health crisis, but for many, it's the only option. By defunding the police, significant resources can be reallocated to create a new community emergency services to support the mental health needs of our vulnerable community members. Teams trained in de-escalation and who root their work in community-informed practices could provide crisis support and care. Traffic Services One of the services that police regularly provide are traffic services. But again, here's an area where armed, uniformed police are unnecessary. 
where police are engaging in traffic services, their intervention could result in more harm to other vehicles using the road. When a UPS truck was stolen in Florida during the course of a robbery in which no one was harmed, the police prioritized the recovery of the likely insured jewelry and capture of the robber over the safety of everyone else using the road. Several police cars engaged in a high-speed chase, crashing into other vehicles on the road. Eventually, police exited their vehicles and began an outrageous shooting spree. Multiple innocent bystanders were killed in the process. Beyond situations like the horrific example above, police are more likely to stop black people for supposed traffic, quote, infractions when no one's safety is at risk. What are the purpose of these stops? Oftentimes, a mere request to justify a traffic stop from a black driver can result in the type of escalation that culminates in death, like Sandra Bland. Increasingly, police officers are using tactics like stealth cars that are difficult to identify as police vehicles in order to, quote, catch drivers by surprise. What is the purpose of this type of strategy? Why is a service that is meant to provide safety and security engaging in gotcha surprise tactics and targeting black people? Why can't our streets and traffic be managed and directed by civilian services instead of armed officers in uniforms. Violent crime. One common refrain in op opposition to defunding the police assumes that our society will not be able to effectively respond to violent crime. But we have to remember that police do not prevent violence. In most incidents of violent crime, police are responding to a crime that has already taken place. When this happens, what we need from police is a service that will investigate the crime and perhaps prevent such crimes from occurring in the future. Policing is ill-equipped to suit these needs. When victims are not the right kinds of victims, police have utterly failed and at times refused to take the threat seriously. Why would we rely on an institution that has consistently proven that it is rife with systemic anti-blackness and other forms of discrimination that result in certain communities being deemed unworthy of support. Instead of relying on police, we could rely on investigators from other sectors to carry out investigations. Social workers, sociologists, forensic scientists, doctors, researchers, and other well-trained individuals to fulfill our needs when violent crime takes place. Police intervention into an ongoing violent crime is rare, but in the event that intervention is required when a violent crime is ongoing, a service that provides expert, specialized, rapid response does not need to be connected to an institution of policing that fails in every other respect. Such a specialized service does not require the billions of dollars we waste in ineffective policing from year to year. Gender-based violence. Some skeptics respond to calls to defund the police with a concern for people at high risk for gender-based violence. The fear is that society will not be able to protect people against sexual assault and domestic violence. But as a society, we are currently failing to protect people from gender-based violence. A woman is killed by a partner in Canada every six days. In the United States, four women are killed by their partners every day. In the U.S., only 20% of all sexual assaults are reported. 
In Canada, less than 10% of all sexual assaults are reported to police. National statistics bodies do not collect the same sort of data for trans communities, though there is no doubt that trans people are targeted for violence due to transphobia across North America, with black women comprising the majority of homicide victims. What this information tells us is that the police barely interact with cases of gender-based violence and are ineffective at preventing gender-based violence from occurring. By freeing up resources currently allocated to the police, our communities could create new services to prevent gender-based violence if we defund the police. Investigation services. Police are meant to provide investigation services for us in the event that we experience a theft or burglary or similar crime. We are inundated with television shows that tell us that police provide expert detective services to bring perpetrators of these kinds of crimes to justice. But these stories are myths and an unjust way to think about the risks that people take when they are living in precarious conditions. In the United States, the clearance rates of in 2018 for motor vehicle theft and burglary were less than 15%. For theft and property crime, the clearance rates were less than 20%. For robbery, the clearance rate was just over 30%, and for arson, the clearance rate was less than 25%. In 2010, the, in Canada, the clearance rates for theft over $5,000 and theft of a motor vehicle were less than 15%. For arson and breaking and entering, the clearance rates were less than 20%. For theft under $5,000, the clearance rate was about 21%. Importantly, clearance rate does not mean solved cases. Clearance refers to cases in which a charge has been laid, and police departments have been criticized for laying charges simply to get clearance rates up, even when an investigation does not lead to the charge that they ultimately lay. What this tells us is that police departments are not very good at investigation services. The problem gets worse when the police are investigating victims that are undervalued in our society. The epidemic of missing and murdered black and indigenous women and girls and trans people across North America is in part due to the lack of seriousness with which police services attend to these disappearances. If we were to defund the police, we could create new investigative services where diverse teams of researchers and investigators with a mix of scientific, public health, and sociological expertise are able to attend to our investigative needs without the inherent anti-blackness with which the police services approach our unsolved cases. Additionally, we could put money into programs attending to the food security and housing security needs of people living in precarity to reduce the likelihood that desperate people unable to have their basic needs met would resort to the extraordinary step of attempting to meet their needs through theft. Bylaw Enforcement, Parking, and Minor Services Across North America, police services attend to minor bylaw enforcement, parking, and minor services like serving warrants. There is no reason for police officers to attend to these services. Minor ticketed offenses and serving warrants for arrests and searches can be delivered by civilian services rather than with armed, uniformed officers. Most bylaws, as well as the fines associated with them, serve to criminalize poverty and not to keep anybody safe. We can dismantle and overturn ordinances that criminalize people in public spaces and especially those that criminalize poverty, 
loitering, fair evasion, sleeping in public, public urination, public intoxication, solicitation, funding the provisions of safe and warm places to sleep that is meaningfully addressing the housing shortage and homelessness crisis in our cities, offers far more safety than police harassment, ticketing, and criminalization. We can enhance neighborhood safety by providing clean and accessible public toilets, free transit, harm reduction and safe injection sites, wet shelters for people who are inebriated, and investing in housing people rather than criminalizing their presence in a public space. In most municipal budgets in North America, the police are funded more than all of these quality of life supports combined. We can choose differently. And that is what defunding is all about. Making different choices, recognizing that what we're doing today is failing, failing in multiple ways, failing spectacularly, and not only failing to accomplish its goals, but is adding harm. It is adding harm against the black communities, communities of color, and other marginalized groups um, by the methods and processes of the policing system. So we can imagine something different. We just need to have the courage to choose that. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. Here's a deem the artist with our moment of Zen. This is defund the KPD. Thanks for listening. Well, I live in a city called Knoxville in a valley in East Tennessee. We've got Mountain Dew, barbecue, and protest in the streets. All right. Yeah, we got a problem with gang violence. Kids don't feel safe in the street. If you want to help, fire the thugs deep on the KPD. Yeah, that's the Knoxville Police Department. You know what I mean. If you want to help to end gang violence, deep on the KPD. All right. Deep on the KPD.